these guys. So this evening, we're going to be continuing a series we started last week, um, entitled, I, I just called it, I didn't know that I kind of figured out what I was called it, who. Because every single sermon is going to be titled, who's blank, and then I, and, and the reason is, is, well, there's two main reasons. One, um, the, the big theme and the goal over the coming weeks as we approach Lent to Ash Wednesday is to read stories of people we may not be as familiar with in Scripture. Um, people who played important roles, people who maybe we've never read their story before or never studied their story before. And then on top of that, it all just is sort of an excuse for me to teach and get to study passages in the Bible I really like. Uh, and tonight is no exception. Tonight I really, it's, I hate, I hate to say I have favorites, but this one's, this one's up there towards the top of the list. So please turn with me. Uh, feel free to follow along on the screen. Um, also open your Bibles in case you'd like to reference anything uh, while I'm up here talking. Um, Exodus chapter 17 is going to be on page 40 in your Bible. And so tonight we're going to be talking about this man, Her. So Exodus 17, starting in verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites, as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. And when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put him under it, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. And so Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, Write out this scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, For hands were lifted up to the throne of God. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. This too is the word of the Lord. So, Tonight, we have a kind of goofy story. And not only is it an interesting story, because it's not something we would think about that you would do to win a battle, having your leader raise his hands, um, but that we have an interesting character that's not super popular. So to give you guys some context for where we are and what's happening, uh, if you're not too familiar with the book of Exodus, we are in a place where the Hebrew people, Moses has just gone to Egypt and brought them out uh, from under Pharaoh. They've seen plagues, they've seen the Passover, the crossing of the Red Sea. Um, they've seen God miraculously feed them with manna from heaven and quail. That even at the beginning of chapter 17, Moses just took the same staff and hit it against the rock and it broke open and gave them water to drink in the desert. They've seen miracle after miracle of God's provision and wisdom. And, and this is the first time they've ever been faced with any sort of battle as a people. You know, many times when we think about the Old Testament, we think about the Israelites fighting over and over and over and over. And, and it's true, but this is the first time they've fought as a people. And, and it kind of makes sense that this is a very large number of people wandering around in the desert, and this is where the Amalekites lived. They weren't very happy about it. And um, there was a fun, sort of the modern-day side of it, on the eastern edge of Egypt. And they were, the Amalekites were nomadic, most likely, um, probably pretty brutal people. If you read, and I'm just going to give you some background on them very quickly, 
references this attack on the Amalekites, right? And it says the Amalekites actually came up behind the Israelites and, and, and started attacking and killing all the stragglers. So you can assume that it would have been children, it would have been elderly, it would have been sick. Um, but it was actually quite a brutal event. And that God was not very happy with them. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19, that they did not fear God. So the Amalekites actually knew who this God was, who the God of the Hebrew people were, or at least they were familiar with him, but it says they did not fear him. And in fact, we learn as the Old Testament goes on that they were in direct opposition to God. That as far as the Old Testament goes, they were sort of on the wrong side of things, as God saw it. Because they were in direct opposition to him and his people. And it's the start of, as we see at the end of our passage, a very long biblical conflict. It says, from generation to generation, the Israelites will be fighting these people. And so, here's the story we have. It starts out in verses 8 and 9. It says, go. Moses goes to Joshua. You know, we know who Joshua is. He takes over after Moses dies. And he says, go and find some men to fight them. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and I'm going to take the staff. The staff that split the Red Sea. The staff that brought water out of the rock. And I'm going to go up on the rock, up above the battle with the staff. And and you're going to go fight them. And it's sort of weird at first read, or if you're not familiar much with what's been going on, but it's not a magical staff. It's just a physical representation of God's power. And as Moses wielded the staff, so God's power was displayed to his people. And he says, hey, basically what he's saying to Joshua is, hey, we're going to let God take care of these people. God took care of us with the Egyptians. God gave us food. God gave us water. God's going to take care of this. So you go tomorrow and take your men, and we'll go up on this hill, and we'll let God handle the Amalekites. And like before, it works. God's power is manifested through Moses, and when his hands are up, they're winning the battle. But he gets tired. I mean, anyone who's ever tried to lift their hands up for a long period of time, or hold something above their head for a long period of time, even something that's not that large, after a while, you get uncomfortable and it starts to hurt. And as his hands lowered, he realized, and they saw that the battle would start to go the other way. And so Moses takes two people. Moses calls his, his brother Aaron, great leader, led him out of Egypt. Let everyone knows Aaron's name. He's the, the first, you know, well, one of the, last week we talked about the actual first, first priest of the Old Testament. He's the first priest of Israel. And actually, even well. Later on, it says that um, in Luke chapter 1, remember when Elizabeth is getting ready to have John the Baptist, it says that Elizabeth can trace her lineage all the way back to Aaron. He's like a celebrity. He's this well-known person. And then there's this other guy. There's this other guy. His name is Her. He's some guy that we don't know really anything about. This is the person we're talking about. He doesn't have a seemingly very important role. He just sort of stands there holding his arm. Moses is, you know, camped out of a rock with his arms up, and, and, and he's just on the other side of Aaron, holding Moses' arm. Just sort of stands there all day. What a boring job. What could we possibly learn from a man who just stands there? Well, as we did last week with Melchizedek, I want to mention just very briefly, uh, from a Bible study standpoint, what else the Bible does say about him. Uh, there's just two, well, two and a half other instances, and uh, one is, and if you just want to make a note, we're not going to turn there and read it, is in Exodus chapter 24, uh, verse 14. Uh, Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with the Lord, and he puts 
Aaron and her are in charge. So the Bible, all it does is it mentions them one more time, just as briefly, it says, he put Aaron and her in charge, and he went up the mountain with the Lord. That's it. And then in Exodus 31, it says that he's a grandfather of a new leader, and his, this new leader of Israel, Exodus 31, chapter, or verse 2, it says that her was the grandfather of this young leader in Israel. And then once more in the genealogy and chronicles, it mentions that he was who his parents were and where he comes from. And that's basically it. Here we have this man who, in Israel's first battle, as a nation trying to find out who they are, is trusting in the Lord. And Moses and Aaron, two of the most famous people maybe from the Old Testament, that, that in the future, like as, as I mentioned, Elizabeth traces her lineage back to Aaron as a source of pride. That I am a descendant of Aaron. He, I mean, this is an important, important person. I've never heard anybody say, well, I'm a descendant of her. I don't even think, I, I mean, I went to Bible college. I don't even think I heard his name until someone told me about this a few years ago. I mean, you read through it and you just sort of glaze right over it. And then Moses took Aaron and her and did this. And, and you focus on the battle being won, the, 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 the great things God is doing. And there's three or four sentences about this man in the Bible, similar to last week. He was present at an amazing event, though. And like last week, there are questions we don't have the answers to. And I don't want to go into those because it's all speculation. But what I want to focus on is this. He was given an opportunity to serve. He was given an opportunity to help and to be there for Moses. Not only to be there for Moses, but to show Moses he had his support. And to show, I mean, imagine the people. Imagine the people looking up on the hill and seeing their leader, and this other guy there with him, supporting him, knowing that God had them under control. And he obviously takes this opportunity and is successful with it. The Hebrew people have great victory because of his help, because of what he was willing to do. And there's a couple of things I, I, I want to extrapolate from this story. There's a couple of things I want to pull out, and I look at it and I see, wow, this is great. And one of them is this. When we talk about leadership, when we talk about living in service to God, sometimes we really overcomplicate it. And yes, sometimes it is complicated, and sometimes it's very difficult, but sometimes it's not that difficult. Sometimes, I, I'm telling you, brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes leadership is just simply being there for people. Sometimes leadership is just showing up and being there over and over and over in the good and the bad, and especially in the mundane, day after day after day. Sometimes leadership is just simply doing what is put in front of you. Anyone could have held that Moses' arm. He didn't have to be this person, but he did it because that's what was put in front of him. And I once was a youth pastor and still am, and have been a youth pastor for years and years, and I love working with young people. And maybe it was because I was in a particularly, you know, tired part of my life, but a young youth pastor once asked me, coming right out of his undergraduate at 21, 22, and I was only 27 or 28, but in the United States, the average lifespan for a youth pastor is only a year or two at the most. And I've been doing youth ministry for six or seven years, so I was, you know, very, very seasoned. And he just asked me, so what's one thing you would tell me? Hey, what's one thing you would tell me? What's the secret to you? And I said, honestly, there's a lot of complications, but there's two things that are really important. Show up every week and call every student by name. When a student comes in, say their name and say, hello, it's good to see you. I probably jumbled over everything. I remember there 
just once or twice where I accidentally let like a swear word slip in youth group and all the kids thought it was the funniest thing. But when it comes down to it, sometimes leadership is as simple as showing up. Sometimes leadership is as simple as being there when you're called to be there. Because there is great power in presence. When we are together in the name of God, there is great power there. We have to be present in this life, brothers and sisters. We have to come together and live alongside other people. And when we come up, when we come together, we trust that God will do things. We trust that God will do a great work. Sometimes we don't know the plan. I'm sure her probably thought this was a little odd. You know, okay, so what do you want me to do? Was this my hands are getting tired? I need you to hold the winter stick rest? No, because when I shut when my arms go down, I'm like, so I need you to stand here all day and just hold up my arms. that Arthur read for us in the Transfiguration about being together. You know, I don't know if anyone's ever thought about this, and one of the reasons I love the story of the Transfiguration is there's a lot of really great things going on there. Jesus goes up to the mountain to be with God and with Moses and Elijah, and, and Jesus didn't lack anything. He didn't need to do this. It, it wasn't like there was some problem that he needed to fix, but I would like to say this. I've always read that and thought, I think Jesus just missed being with God. I think Jesus was traveling around and preaching and teaching and doing all these things, and he just got to a point where he just said, you know what, Lord, I just really, I really just want to be with you and your servants right now. He went up on that mountain and just needed some time together with Moses and Elijah and his Lord. If I'm honest, that's an opinion. But I read it and I think, man, there is so much power in community. There's so much power in being together that when I read that passage, I just think, it's not so different than her and Moses and Aaron coming together to be there for each other, to support each other. And we know that this is what we're supposed to do. We know what we're supposed to live in community. And so when we talk about how we live our life, when we talk about doing what's put in front of us, when we talk about serving the Lord, this is the main thing I want to address. What is our motivation? How do we find motivation to do what God has set in front of us? And not just find motivation, but find it regularly. Because I don't know if you've noticed this or if anyone has this experience. I do. My motivation changes. Right? One day, I, I feel like I have a great attitude. And I'm doing the things, and I'm doing the things I'm supposed to do, and, and, and I'm trying to pursue God, and I'm doing all this other stuff. But then the next day, I'm, I'm kind of in a bad mood. Kind of cynical. Maybe I get a little selfish. Maybe I'm a little manipulative, and I try to get someone to do what I want them to do. How do we become consistent? Or, or maybe it's a better way to put it. How, how do we become people whose motivations are constantly after serving God? And are constantly after other people rather than ourselves? How do we live a life to where we can say we want to be like Jesus? And we want to live for other people the way Christ did? How do we become people whose motivations honor and serve God? Well, I think there's two things we can do, and I think there's two things when I see her that, that I think I can take and that we can take and be encouraged with tonight. The first is to do it quietly. You don't have to be a celebrity. You don't have to be well-known for everyone. You don't have to be in, in the foreground. You can be in the background. You can do it quietly. 
In Matthew chapter 6, verse 3, Jesus said, When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You know, I think a lot of times we do things for the right reasons. But most of us in this room can admit that sometimes we do things for the wrong reasons, even if it's a good thing. The world is obsessed with this idea of celebrity. The world is obsessed with being famous. The world is obsessed with having a brand, having having recognition, being well-known, knowing that you're a good person. God is not. God is not obsessed with celebrity. God is doing work with people like her, making his name more famous, with moments that seem sort of small, but have a great impact. This man, to quietly help, to quietly help with the great things God is doing. Sometimes we get to be up front. Sometimes we get to stand in front and people recognize us for our needs and, and, and it feels great. But most of the time, and most of you understand this, our power is not glamorous. Most of the time what God puts before us is not very envious of other people. It really is. Aaron and Moses lived on for years as celebrities and being well-known and everything, but her was there too. Her was there doing the same things for the same reasons, and we don't know about him. And yet he was pivotal in the story of the Hebrew people. He does not have any great lineage that people bragged about for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, but he was essential to the story of God. And, and the goofy thing about this is this is sort of the paradox of all Christianity, that we are called to do great things, but not for ourselves. That as parents, those of you who are parents in this room, you are called to lay your life down for your child. And that same child yells no and throws things and throws tantrums and, and, and says awful things sometimes. Think about it with friendships, with relationships. How many times have you reached out to someone and laid your life down for them and they said, no, thank you. We do it in work. We try to do the right thing and it comes back and then we get in trouble or something doesn't turn out and it falls on our shoulders. Whatever it is we do, whether it's relationships, work, job, how do we treat people like Christ? What is our motivation? Is it for our recognition or to honor God? And so Jesus, the first thing that we can do, I believe, is to go about our business quietly. When God calls us to do something quietly, to go about our business quietly and diligently. The second thing I want to point out that I think is very important, and this is more for us, it's not so evident in the story of her, but it's very important to you and I, is that we find the power to do what Jesus did in the Transfiguration and go back to the source. We go back to God. I don't have time to go through the Bible in, in all the different verses about God being our strength and God being our source of joy and all the things that comes from it. But I'm just going to mention one of my favorites. Uh, many of you are familiar with this passage in John chapter 4 about the Samaritan woman at the well. It's a beautiful passage of a woman who a Jewish rabbi would have thought was unclean and couldn't be seen with and couldn't talk with. And Jesus tells this woman when she asks him a question, are we supposed to worship in Jerusalem or in Samaria? What do we do? And she says, I'm honest, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you worship. What matters is that you worship in spirit and in truth. And that I can be the source, that I can be the source that gives you living water that will never make you thirsty. You're sitting here at this well, and I am looking at you. 
this morning I got up and was looking over the sermon and thinking, okay, how do I do how do I really, you know, impress this upon us? And I wrote this line down and I thought about it. So I want to share it with you and then I want to talk about it just very briefly. I said, we can all model the leadership of God. No matter what, we can all be like Jesus. And I don't know why, but I immediately began to question that. Now, is that true? Can we really all be like Jesus? Okay. As a pastor, you, you see things and you hear things and you talk to people and you wonder if people can all really be like Jesus. And then it, it's almost like God's, I mean, I've never heard the audible voice of God, but it was almost like getting smacked in the back of the head. And I was saying, of course, of course we can all. Of course. Because when I look at this lesson and when I look at this man and her that we know so little about, I have no doubt in my mind that when he was standing here holding up Moses' arm, he trusted that God would deliver them. And if I can tell you something tonight that is the most important thing for you to hear, is that if you're looking to be a person of God, if you're looking to be a man or a woman who people see as the image of Christ, the most important thing you can do is go back to the source of that image and the source of that power every single day to trust that he is what you need. That your motivations, to, if you really want them to be for people around you and other people in your relationship, it's to go to God every day to pursue what he would have you do. And the reason this is so hard for us is because, and many of you know this, is because it's easier for us to control someone than to really love someone. It's easier for, for us to exercise power than it is to exercise humility, isn't it? And so the world has decided that they're going to exercise power and manipulation because it's easier. But brothers and sisters, as Christians, we are not called to do what is easy. We're just not. And at no point, I mean, yes, Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But then you also read Luke chapter 9, where he talks about the cost of discipleship. No point does Jesus take this lightly. And, and when Jesus famously, in John chapter 21, at the end of the Gospel of John, asked Peter, after Peter's betrayal, three times, he says, do you love me, feed my sheep? Do you love me, feed my lambs? Do you love me? And Peter gets annoyed, and Peter gets offended. He says, Jesus, why are you asking me this so much? Because Jesus knew that Peter would be the rock of his church, that Jesus was going to start his church with Peter, and that Peter had to really understand what it was to lay his life down for other people. I think her gives us an image of this. He's not well-known. He's not famous. He simply did what had to be done. And he does it again and again. As I said, when Moses goes up to the mountain to meet with God, he's called on to be the leader of Israel, and he does it. His life probably was not that exciting. This might have been one of the more exciting events in his life. And it's great. So you see, for us to be consistent men and women of God, for us to be men and women of God whose motivations are to serve and love other people, it does cost us dearly. It costs all of ourselves. It costs everything we have. And then we trust that God is enough. And when we go back to Jesus every day, that he will fill us up so we can give This is why, this is why not many people choose the narrow road, is it? This is why many people say no to Christ. This is why the Amalekites were in opposition to God. 
Christ calls us to be people who are, who are humble, people who seek love. But too many people in this world would rather seek power and fame than love and humility. You know, as I mentioned, God doesn't necessarily care about celebrity. You know, if you think of Christian celebrities, first one that comes to mind for most people is Mother Teresa. And Mother Teresa obviously lived a great life and served many people, even despite some of the criticism of what I looked it up just because I was curious. As of 2012, the organization she started in India had over 4,500 nuns working for them. I can't name one other nun other than Mother Teresa. And yet all of these women are serving God diligently every day. And when I look at the story of her, the same message rings true that this life is not necessarily about power and fame. It's about service to our God, where he has placed us, and for what purpose. We can leave quietly. We can show up and just do our job and trust God. And when you struggle, brothers and sisters, with motivation and desire, keep going back to the well so that you can give all of yourself freely, knowing that God desires to give to you freely, and that God will provide all of you all that you need so that you can give others all that they need. Just remember. Lord, thank you. I thank you for being the way, the truth, and the life. I thank you that through our weakness, you are made perfect. And so, Father, as we desire to live our lives for others and do the things we ought to do, I pray that you would give us strength. Lord, that you would give us humility. Lord, that we would be men and women who lay our life down for those around us, for our friends, for our neighbors, for our co-workers. And Father, I pray that it would be Christ who fills us back up and we might do it again the next day. Father, I thank you for the example of her, a man who was not a celebrity and not famous, Lord, but from his example we see that he led diligently his whole life. Lord, that he passed his faith on to another generation that would become leader as well. Lord, thank you for his example, his quiet example. Father, I pray that for those of us who are called to live a similar quiet example, that we would do it faithfully. Lord, that we would do it trusting you in your strength and our might. Father, thank you. It's in your name we pray all of these things, knowing that.